This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Oh, me! <laughs> Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. We are in the middle of preseason testing. We are just over a week away from the first race, the first Grand Prix of the 2023 season. And as you're listening to this, Drive to Survive Season 5 is on Netflix, ready for your immediate consumption. But make sure you listen to the entirety of this podcast first because we need your love. <laughs> we need your attention. Mr. Daly, that was probably a rocky start, but keep it as is. I love when our I love when our listeners get the the, the true and uncut version the of the raw, show. The raw, unedited version of the show. I kind of did that on purpose. I didn't say anything before we hit record here. And then I know I kind of caught you off guard, but you recovered well with uh, with my unexpected shenanigans. I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. I mean, DTS is literally in our in our Netflix feeds right now, middle of preseason testing. We got the first Grand Prix coming up. We got a whole slate of programming coming over the next uh, several days. I mean, it's like, what are we going to have? Like about three or four drops a day it seems like there are going to be quite a few shows coming up over the next week or 10 days or so but uh it's it's really exciting and and it's just like it's it's hard to believe it's like where did the last three months go it's like it just disappeared in a gust of wind it's amazing it was it was a busy it was funny we did a spaces chat tonight and we were talking about the fact that there was just an endless torrent of news all off season. So the off season, in my opinion, just vanished so quickly. We obviously had the team principal drama with Ferrari right at the end of November, and it just carried on and carried on and sustained And Just to backtrack a couple of minutes or a couple of points that you just made there, like we do have a ton of content coming out and that has just come out. So if you typically just tune into the show on Friday morning, because you like the newest of the new shows, uh, I would recommend go back and check out a couple of episodes that we already dropped this week. So a couple of days ago, we dropped a very special episode with Alanis King and Elizabeth Blackstock. They're the co-authors of Racing with Rich Energy, that really great book that breaks down the, the history and the relationship between Rich Energy and, and Haas Formula One team. Check that out. That's a really great episode. On Sunday, I think, or maybe it was Monday, sat down with Seth Whiteberg, who of course has been on the show before. We did a Drive to Survive predictions show. So we sat down and talked about all of the predictions that we had for the season. So that's really exciting. Today, of course, you and I, my friend, were sitting down doing really what the 
what is the backbone of this mm-hmm. show, which is that weekly news show. Um, on Saturday, I'll be sitting down with Mr. Sam Cooper of Planet F1. He and I are going to talk about what we think are the six biggest storylines for Formula One in 2023. On Sunday Daily, you, me, and Mr. Tim Haraney, it's been a long time since we've done anything with Mr. Tim Haraney. We're going to sit down and we're going to do our preview show for 2023. And I promise you, it's the best one that we've done in many, many years. We put a ton of work into uh, what we want to discuss and how we want to tackle that topic. And then next Wednesday, you, me, and Seth are going to sit down and we're going to do our reaction show to Drive to Survive Season 5. And then next Friday, you and I are going to sit down and do our first race preview of 2023. So a ton of content. And with all of that, I ask, I beg, I plead, if you like any of this, please give us a rating on Spotify and a rating and a review on Apple. But yeah, we're we're kind of rent up the content just because there's so much interest in Formula yeah, One right absolutely, now. Absolutely, absolutely. So excited to to get through that. And, and and I'm behind listening to my own podcast. I haven't had a chance to listen to the one that you did with <laughs> Alanis and Elizabeth. And I'm, they were both. I know, so good. and, and I was so listening good. to it as I was editing it and putting it together to drop it into the feed. So I heard uh, chunks here and there. But I've been so busy the last couple of days. Like, and and I enjoy all the interview series ones that you do. But this one. I've really been looking forward to it a little bit more than the other ones, just because that whole rich energy thing is just such a bizarre story to begin with, that to, to sit down with, with you to sit down with Alanis and Elizabeth and talk about it in detail is something that I've really wanted to hear more and about it. spoiler, spoiler, my friend, I know you entered the contest, but you unfortunately did not win <laughs> one of the copies of Racing with Rich Energy. Those were won by Mr. Ken Snyder, Mr. John Borg, and Mr. Eric Nubaron. Those books have all been ordered. I think John has actually already received wow. his. I think he cool. posted a photo of having nice. received it already. Uh, Ken and Eric, I think yours are scheduled to arrive on the 28th from Amazon. So uh, again, thanks to everybody for uh, for entering that contest. Yeah, that's cool. That's uh, yeah, that, that's like giving stuff away. That's awesome. Also, I want to give a shout out to, to Dom, friend of the show. We were at an event tonight with, uh, you know, for uh, something our kids are involved in. And uh, we got to, to talking and realized that, hey, I host the podcast that he enjoys listening to. We started talking Formula One and cars in general. So it was awesome to to meet uh, you know one of you guys in, in real life. And, and it's Dude, I think you're playing down that story though. Like, I, I like the way you framed it to me earlier, which was this guy kept looking. Every time you would talk, he'd look over at you with a crook eye like, who is this guy? Do I know this guy? And it's because he's been listening to your podcast yeah, for years, exactly. which is super it was cool funny story. That, uh, it, was, it was a really, really cool encounter. It's all, always great to meet uh, different people. And, 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 it's, and it was, you know, but what was also really cool about it is that these sort of conversations that you have with people about F1, like five years ago, two years ago, it was like something that never happened. And and now it's it's just, you know, the, the, the opportunities yeah, and the chance call. that you have to, when you beat somebody, that the, the, the chance that Formula One is going to come up in that discussion discussion has just increased so much and in, in, in large part uh, thanks to uh, Drive to Survive. Um, Dom's been a longtime Formula One fan, but, but uh, it was just uh, cool that uh, that whole interaction, that whole opportunity to, to, to get to meet and speak with him tonight. Okay, so where do we want to go? Oh, so you've got Fantasy League is, is coming back. So that's number one. You got some deets on that or is that uh, still? Yeah, so 
100%. So I wanted to launch it earlier this week. Unfortunately, the Formula One site and the Formula One site. So let's be honest, like the F1 fantasy site is terrible and it's been terrible for years. <laughs> and I apologize to the two, the 2000 people that joined our fantasy league last year that they had to be subjected to such an, such a terrible site. Formula One is promising a much better fantasy league experience this year. They haven't delivered on that yet because they haven't actually opened it up. So the moment it's open and I can create the league, I will do so and I'll start posting the code on our Twitter feed to make sure we can get as many people in as possible. And of course, we'll award prizes. This year, Mr. Daly, I will personally drive to your house and sit with you to make sure that you enter your own fantasy <laughs> league. So I want your, I need your commitment. And before we kind of kick it off, just a couple of other really quick updates here as well. Uh, wishing a speedy recovery to friend of the show, Hamda Al-Kobesi. Uh, of course, she's been competing in the F4 Asian UAE comp or, con or competition uh, during the winter. She had a nasty on-track incident a couple of days ago, broke her wrist. She is in really, really good spirits, and we've been in touch and wished her the best. Uh, so hoping a speedy recovery for Hamda. Uh, a couple of other quick updates here as well. There was a really cool update from Jenny Gao. So of course, Jenny Gao does some really great work in the paddock and she's one of my favorite formula one media personalities but as we all know the poor thing suffered a stroke a couple of months ago she had an update on her instagram a couple of days ago which reads so here we are at the beginning of another f1 season testing is almost underway and we're just a couple of days away from the launch of drive to survive season five i'm gutted not to be well enough to return to the paddock and to bring you all the excitement my recovery is progressing well considering eight weeks ago i wasn't able to move fully or speak at all hopefully i'll be back soon in the meantime let's hope for a brilliant season and good luck to everyone involved i'll be watching yeah. and well glad to hear that uh, that jenny's getting be better and recovering nicely but that's still just a, a shocking story that uh, somebody uh, at her, her age would have such a, a nasty you know a health incident uh, like that so I'm glad to hear that she's uh, well on the mend next one top three 2023 liveries is voted for by the formula one fans coming in at number one and 31 percent of the votes None other than Mercedes. And with that all black, semi-gloss black, I should say, uh, livery, that's not a real surprise. I guess the surprise is how much that they're really out out in front. So if the, this has anything to do with on-car, you know, on-track performance, which obviously it doesn't, <laughs> they're quite a ways ahead of a Ferrari who came with uh, pulled at uh, 19%. And then third place was uh, Alfa Romeo. I mean, all three of those cars look uh, absolutely wonderful. Like we talked about, uh, you know, over the past uh, several weeks, couple of weeks, I guess it is, rather than several, with all the car launches that we've seen that we really like the, uh, obviously we love the Mercedes, we really like the, the Alfa for mail. I really like the Ferrari one. I think they could have just tidied up, made it a little bit of a nicer line for, for my eyes or my eyes anyways on the, uh, the, the back of the air box, but that exposed carbon fiber just looks so, so, so good and I uh, love it. So I don't think there's any real uh, surprises there. Then the next one, the most experienced teams on the grid in 2023 coming in at number one is Aston Martin with Fernando Alonso and Lance Stroll between them, 477 races, 355 for uh, Alonso. 122 for Lance. When did Lance race in 122 races? It feels like he just entered the sport. It's like, where has my life gone, Hammy? Where has my life gone? I just, that one blows my mind away. Then uh, second is uh, Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez. Between the two of them have uh, 390 races, 163 for the double world champ, 235 for Sergio Perez. Then third is uh, Mercedes with Hamilton and Russell, 310 for Lewis and 82 for 
for George. Even that seems like that snuck up in me a, a little bit. Where I saw that George Russell is already has 82 Grands Prix uh, to his name. Then you have, uh, let's see, uh, Haas with Hulkenberg and Magnussen at fourth. Ferrari is uh, Leclerc and Carlos Sainz, 264 races uh, between the two of them. Uh, Botas and Joe Guan Yu at Alfa Romeo. Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly. This is interesting. Between the uh, two of them, they've raced almost the identical amount of races, 111 for Esteban Ocon and uh, 108 for Pierre Gasly, grand total of 219. Then coming down to the the lesser experienced teams, you have uh, McLaren with uh, Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri. Lando, 82 races into his Formula One career, same as uh, George Russell. Then you have at Williams, uh, Alex Albon, 59 races and zero for Logan Sargent, uh, the, the the rookie. Also, uh, Oscar Piastri going to be a rookie starting here in the next week or so. And then finally, we have dead last in the the most experienced teams on the grid in 2023 is Alpha. Towery. 43 races combined for Yuki Sonoda and Nick DeFries. And of course, Nick only has one race to his belt or under his belt. And that was at Monza last year when he filled in for Alex Albon. And then Yuki, 42 races to his credit in Formula 1. A- any names really jump at you? I mean, there's some, you know, I guess some of the ones like I would say, like uh, like like Lance, 122 races. I just, I still feel like he's like, like, like a rookie at uh, some point. I don't know why, but he's been around for a long time. Yeah, and he's still only 24 years old. He was born on October 29th, 1998. He's like one of those those young kids that comes into the NBA, and I guess it hasn't happened in a while because there's been the one and done rule, but he's like a Tracy McGrady that or a LeBron James that came into high school so young that it feels like they've been in the league for a decade and they're still only 24 years old. But yeah, remarkable that he has 120 plus Grand Prix under his belt and he's only 24 years old. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Okay, let's uh, move on to the next one. And we're a couple, well, we're right in the middle of winter testing. Again, talking about where's my life gone. I can't believe that we're already in uh, winter testing. Hemi, why don't you bring us up to speed on what's been happening on the track in Bahrain? Right. So there have been a number of Formula One cars that have appeared mm-hmm. on track. Um, <laughs> many have successfully finished. No, I tease, I jest, I jest. I think, I think it's pretty important that we kind of recalibrate what people's understandings are and expectations are of preseason testing. Because I don't typically get really worked up about things and comments that I see yeah. on the internet. I typically turn a blind eye. I like, I like to see what's happening on Reddit. I like to see what's happening on Twitter. But I think it's really important to understand that preseason testing isn't about these drivers going out and driving these cars in anger on day one that a lot of what we're seeing are the teams especially in the first session the first days it's really about the teams using the tools at their disposal to try to get an understanding of whether the car they've actually built meets the expectations that they had coming out of their CFD modeling and out of the sim and out of the wind tunnel. So early on in session one, we saw a lot of the cars out with the arrow rakes attached. And those are the contraptions that look like a clothesline that stick out each side of the car. And they basically just measure airflow over the body of the car. And they really just want to make sure that what they thought or how they thought the aerodynamic features of the car were going to work is how they actually operate. You see a lot of the cars out with aero viz and really the cars are just out there, especially on day one, just to capture data. They're just out there to pile up as many laps as possible. And we didn't really learn a lot. I think the headlines were that, hey, Max put in the fastest lap on day one um, of 
winter testing. He also, more importantly, put in 150 laps, but that's because he drove in both sessions for the Red Bull. And I think a lot of the teams will only will split the sessions duty. So they'll have one driver in the first session, another driver in the second session. Um, and I think if you look forward to, I think if you look forward to Friday, I think Perez is going to start and Verstappen will have the second session and then Perez will do both sessions on the Saturday. But really the value of winter testing is just to accumulate as much data as possible. It's not necessarily to go out there and try to put in the fastest lap possible. That's not the objective. That's not the goal. And really, we're probably not going to learn an awful lot about these cars. I mean, we'll learn an awful lot about them because we're seeing them and we're seeing them in 4K and we're seeing high resolution photos coming from the cars, but we're not going to necessarily learn a lot about what their performance capabilities are. And even when you look at the physical construct, and if you look at the aerodynamic features of these cars, a lot of that will be changed by the time we get to the first race next weekend. And it will certainly be overhauled by the time we get to Australia and Baku and Canada and probably even Jeddah to to a lesser extent. But really, this is just an opportunity for the teams to get the cars on the track and to start accumulating data. That's what's really important here. What you don't want is to encounter reliability issues. And what you certainly don't want is a driver to make a mistake and put the car into the wall or put the car into the sand and cause damage because that compromises your ability to have the car on the lap pounding out laps or pound out on the track pounding out laps to collect that data so what did we learn well we learned that max was the fastest on the first day of winter testing when cars aren't really being driven that hard uh, he put in 150 laps alondo uh, uh, fernando alonso put in the second fastest lap but he didn't put in as many laps or he put in the second fastest lap but didn't count or or do as many laps because he only did one session we didn't really learn a lot and i didn't really expect to learn a lot i think we'll start to learn a lot more by the time we get to free practice three in the qualifying session next weekend at this very same track but at the same time all of that said and i'm not trying to downplay and make this less exciting and take away a lot of people's energy about the fact that we're kind of preseason testing is just what it is it's it's an opportunity for the teams to get those the cars on the track. Now, in the past, when we would have had multiple weeks of winter testing, and we would have had multiple winter testing events scattered over different continents, uh, we probably would have seen different outcomes. But again, in the cost cap era, one of the promises is to drive down the carbon footprint of the sport and to reduce costs. We've really consolidated all the testing into this three-day window. Last year, we had two or we had two three-day uh, winter testing. We had obviously three days in Barcelona and we had three days in Bahrain. That was really more of an exception simply because we were introducing the new aero formula and the teams were rocking entirely new chassis and they may have, may have needed a little bit more time to shake them down. But the three days is, is obviously more in line with what we'll see historically. In fact, Christian Horner today, and probably not... Uh, probably not a surprise coming from the team principal of the team that won both championships last year, argued that teams probably really only need two days of, of winter testing, um, which I think is probably a little bit unfair, especially to the teams closer to the bottom of the, the championship. But yeah, not a lot, not a lot to be said. Stayed up late, had a lot of fun, chatted with some friends, um, had a really great ch cut chat last night watching winter testing with my good friend, uh, my BFF Reem from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And I came to to realize how lucky we are in Canada with the F1 TV Pro app that you and I, my friend, we sit down, we can take for granted that we can just pull up winter testing and watch it live at any time. But if you're living in a region where the F1 TV Pro app doesn't exist yet um, or is blocked 
or isn't available because it's being superseded by the local broadcast partner of Liberty, you're kind of out of luck. So uh, again, a few years ago, when TSN was the only way to watch Formula One in this country, and we didn't have F1 TV Pro up here, I wouldn't even have been able to watch it. So it was pretty cool last night to be able to pull up the app um, and watch it real time. And I certainly didn't take that for granted. Yeah, totally. Uh, It really has been a game changer. I mean, I... (laughs) I mean, I, I don't want to throw too much shade at to TSN, but what, what I like most about F1 TV Pro is that you can sit down and watch qualifying. You can watch a race without any commercial interruptions, which which I find just uh, so distracting. But I mean, hey, I understand you got to pay the bills and, you know, that's uh, <laughs> that's how they do it, right? But it does, especially when when you have like a sport like Formula One, where that it always seems that the commercial breaks happen when there's something interesting happening on the track. And most of the time, that's pretty time, you know, pretty much any time between the green lights and the checkered flag. So there I really don't is know no... for sure, but I yeah. I don't think that's coincidental. I don't think that's coincidental. I, I, I have my own kind of conspiracy theories about it, but you know, it's I've I've always kind of like guessed that uh, you know they they hit the big red commercial button on the control panel whenever you know like uh, the first round of pit stops happen or whatever it is, but they always seem to backload it too, especially like on an exciting race where they know people are watching. It seems like there there's a lot of like uh, extra commercial breaks. But I was also just uh, going to say the one thing that kind of stood out for me is uh, just looking at these uh, lap charts and like like you say, I think you summed up really good, Mark about what the, the the first day of testing is, what winter testing is in, in, in general. But I think that uh, just kind of maybe take some of these times uh, aside and you realize that there's a pretty big, uh, big spread between uh, Max Verstappen and Kevin Magnussen, who was the slowest car today. But the, the, the one thing that kind of stood out for me is, is basically all the drivers drove a full race length uh, today, except for Max that basically drove two races today. Fernando put in 60 laps, Carlos Sainz 72, Charles 64, Lando a little bit on, on the on the lean side. He only put in 40 laps, Lewis 83, Albon 74, and the list goes on. So it seems like for for me, it's it it seems as much as a chance for them to shake down the cars and get some data. It's also good. A uh, it's a good time for the drivers to to get a bit a bit of time in the car and recondition themselves, of which they haven't done <laughs> in the last Daily, three months. You, right? You just nailed it. Right? Like the reality is, like you and I know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, these drivers could be in the car. Anytime they had a full-time test driver that was in a car testing the car around the clock, around the calendar. The reality is now that those test teams don't exist. That third car doesn't exist. That full-time test driver doesn't exist. And for these drivers in the off season, you know what? They're doing a lot of conditioning. Some of them might race in a couple of other disciplines at notable events. But the reality, this is the first time that most of these drivers have been in the car in a meaningful way since Abu Dhabi last year. Um, and they may have done some of the shakedown in the filming days, but you're absolutely right. This is as much for the teams to get data as it is an opportunity for the drivers to start getting some reps because, and you and I don't know this because we've never done it and we can only kind of relay what we've been told, but the physical strains of driving a Formula One car are immense and the drivers need to be conditioned to be able to do that. So by the time we get to Bahrain, to your point, maybe they've got two or three race distances under their belt. 
Yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? And I can't imagine what the stresses are like when it comes to, to driving a Formula One car. But, you, you know, when it's like any other sport that you do and you don't do it for a couple of months and then you come back and you're, you're out of shape, you're out of condition. I mean, these, these, these drivers, they train all year long. They exercise, you know, intensely to, to stay fit enough to drive one of these cars. And, and I'm sure that some of these drivers are pretty sore after that, uh, that, that first session until they reacclimatize uh, and, and get used to that, uh, you know, all the, the, the violent forces that they're being subjected to. But anyways, exciting that it's happening. It'll be interesting to watch and see what happens uh, later on tonight here on the West Coast as it uh, as it is when the, the second session gets underway. And then uh, we'll take a look at it and see. But, you know, great to think that this time next week we'll be back at this very same track, but for a very different reason. And that is for the first uh, race of the season. Anyways, uh, time to break away here quickly. We're going to have a, a quick um, a word from our sponsor. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. All right, welcome back. So we've got uh, preseason testing under our belts. Well, at least uh, one day. So we will move on now to the next uh, story. And oh, the one thing I just wanted to talk about is um, just before we get out of order here. So Lance uh, Stroll, the Aston Martin driver, is going to miss uh, preseason testing in uh, Bahrain. He was involved in a cycling accident uh, just uh, over a couple of days ago. So Felipe Drugovic, the young Brazilian driver, is going to, to fill in for him. So uh, Lance uh, said in a press release on the Aston Martin F1.com website, quote, I have had an unfortunate accident while training on my bike in preparation for the season. I am determined to get back in the car and I'm excited about the season ahead with the team. I am motiva- motivated to bounce back from the setback as quickly as possible. End quote. Daily. So unfortunate. Yes. Daily. Who's your, and I know you and I aren't gamblers and we don't bet, but if you were forced to put money on this right now, who do you think is going to be in that second Aston Martin next weekend? Is it going to be Felipe Drogovic or is it going to be a, and we don't necessarily know the extent of his injuries other than the fact that um, they were injuries to his wrist and maybe some broken bones. Like, do we expect Lance Stroll to be back in that car next weekend? Yeah, that's a great question, Hammy, because, uh, you know, just uh, reading between the lines on, on, on Lance's press statement, that press release there, it kind of like sounds that it might be a sort of, I wouldn't say a long-term thing, but maybe a, a medium-term thing. Because like you say, they they didn't really release too much information other than that, uh, that he had an accident while he was uh, riding his like out on a bike ride training for the uh, for, for the upcoming season. So we don't really know exactly what, 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 what happened, what exactly the extent of his injury are but i kind of really you know get the feeling that that maybe it might be felipe in the car next uh, n- next week and i think it might be a couple or several weeks before we see lance uh, behind the wheel in that aston martin i don't yeah, know that's, I, that, I, that's just me yeah no man i i totally agree and the reality is if it is in fact a wrist injury uh you can't put somebody behind the wheel of a formula one race car like they obviously have uh they obviously have a power steering module uh but driving a formula one car is so 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 much more difficult than is a traditional road car or a 
sports car or even a hyper car. I just, I can't imagine him being in that car. He, he, the reality is he would compromise his recovery and he's also a risk to himself and the other drivers on the track. Uh, Felipe Drogovic, who we haven't really spoken a lot about, was the Formula 2 champion last year. He finished with 265 points, so about, I think, 100 points ahead of the second-place finish. Uh, his his championship was really propelled by the fact that he had four race wins in the first half of the season before tapering off a little bit in the back half of the season. So, obviously, he's done his reps. He did three full seasons in Formula 2. He's He's been around. Um, he is the official test reserve driver for the Aston Martin team, but what a, and no pun intended, but what a huge break this could be for him, that unexpected to be able to get some time behind a Formula One car in winter testing, which would never have been the case, obviously, if Lance was healthy. And the fact that he could potentially be on the starting grid next weekend, like this is uh, this is the kind of break that I think every young driver who doesn't have a Formula One seat um, can only hope for. And of course, I don't think he wishes anything negative comes to, to Lance Stroll, but I think this is a huge, huge, huge opportunity for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, these opportunities to to really showcase yourself in Formula One come so infrequently, and and like you say, it's unfortunate that uh, Felipe's opportunity comes at the expense of uh, Lance recovering from from an injury. But at the same time, I mean, he's he's got to try and take advantage of that, and what, well, he's got the opportunity to, to to shine at least prove that you know he he might not be a Formula One like like the the primary driver at the moment, but he's got the talent to 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 be there. So if he doesn't stick with the Aston Martin in the short, medium or, or, or long term, he's got to think about uh, trying to, to market himself and his uh, capabilities uh, as, a, as a driver that if he doesn't stick there, that maybe he'll be some he'll be somebody that someone else in a different team might be thinking of to say, well, we better look into uh, Drigovic. He's, he's available. Let's see if uh, he's a good match with our team or not. Yeah, dude. And time behind the wheel of a Formula One car is is absolute like just in terms of value is immense man that you cannot mm-hmm. I, I guess you could make the argument you can but you you can't really buy time behind the 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 steering wheel of a formula one race car so this is huge for him and i'm just reading here on wikipedia as well i think this is interesting uh felipe drogovic born 23rd may 2000 is a brazilian italian racing driver of austrian descent <laughs> what what a cool what what a cool background that he has in his family tree that that that's amazing There's so Brazilian a, a born Italian DNA there yeah, yeah no Brazil, kidding right Brazilian Italian racing driver of Austrian descent born in Brazil that that I I'd love to see that family tree that is uh, that yeah. that is quite <laughs> <That's> so true <laughs> t- touching a lot of different bases there that's awesome okay uh, moving along we're seeing seven uh, seven pardon me different uh, tire compounds uh, at uh, Bahrain for the the preseason testing we've going all the way from the C zero uh, softs all the way up to the or sorry those those would be the hards uh, pardon me all the way up to the C five reds we've got intermediates we've got the uh, the wet blue tires that we always see and then we. We've got a C3, and that's a Proto. So this is actually um, like a benchmark um, tire that they're using to, um, I guess, uh, kind of see what the performance is like with the other compounds that they're out there. But that is a lot of different tires that they're there that they brought to Bahrain. What what more can you tell us about that? Uh, not not a lot, other than the fact not that there's a couple of uh, interesting. 
uh, tweets that came out from some of the analysts this week that are kind of watching the testing. So, of course, we talk about the value of Formula One testing for the teams and the drivers, but it's also an opportunity to test new tires and new tire compounds and all those kind of things. But one of the tweets that I saw that come out this week, and my friend, can you can you pronounce this name correctly? Because I'm going to butcher it. Um, <laughs> it's the first tweet in the outline after the chart illustrating the tire compounds. How do I say that name? Uh, Giuliano Duchessa. Perfect. Duquesa. Duquesa says, and, and this is a really interesting tweet, first indications that the Pirelli 2023 tires will travel with lower starting pressures thanks to the new structure. We will see if this good intention can be maintained, which would mean an increase in surface area and grip. So the point here being that in theory, with the new internal structure of these tires, they could start with a lower um I would say they would start with a lower pressure, so low, less air pressure in the tire. And the benefit of having less air pressure is the tire is actually a little less round, which means mm -hmm. that it sits a little bit more flat. And the reason that's important is it increases the amount of surface area. It increases the amount of rubber that touches the pavement. And by increasing the amount of rubber that touches the pavement, you're actually increasing the amount of grip. So it increases a little bit of drag. It like increases a little bit of drag, but ultimately this could be a good thing. And then the other one here from Albert for Fabregia, my friend, can you try and help me again? I'm just butchering <laughs> names tonight. Albert uh, Fabrega, I would say. Fabrega. I'm just going to guess at that one. Yeah. And he tweeted here as well from Imola, Pirelli will supply a new extreme wet tire specification with much more performance. Such tires will not require the use of blankets. And of course, Formula One is still very much invested in ditching blankets, tire warmers entirely for the 2024 season. I think based on some of the experiences they've had so far, I'm doubtful that's going to happen. But Pirelli is desperately hard at work trying to engineer tires that will be at operating temperatures uh, without a tire blanket. But yeah, just a couple of interesting observations, but it's cool to see that they're continuing to test compounds. Yeah, I, I don't know what the, uh, yeah, I think it's fascinating they are. I don't know what the, uh, what the, the um, tire pressures were before the uh, you know before this year but with the slicks and the intermediates we're we're looking at 21 psi on the front tires and then 18.5 psi on the rears and the wet uh, weather tires the full wets the blue uh, those are tires with the blue stripes or bands around the outside of them so 20 psi at the front and 17 and a half psi at the at the back and it's interesting too on this little chart here from uh, Pirelli Motorsport that the maximum heating times and temperatures in the tire blankets for 6 is uh, 2 hours at 70 degrees celsius wow. Wow. Intermediates is to uh, see 60 degrees Celsius for a max of two hours, and then wet weather tires 40 degrees Celsius for a max of uh, two hours. You know, it's interesting that those those full on wet tires, you know, they're they're basically almost half the uh, you know the, the the temperature required for the for 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 the slicks. So that that's an interesting thing that kind of jumped out uh, at me right now. Uh, but moving along, so new tires, wet weather body kit testing, DRS zone changes, and a bunch of other things are being discussed in the first F1 commission meeting of 2023. So that's uh, a lot of uh, different things that uh, that they're talking about. Uh, so Pirelli's uh, have made a, a couple of uh, more, uh, what they call more performant wet weather tires that will be available from 2023 at Imola. And the tire, this, this is the interesting part too, is that uh, the tire won't 
won't need the uh, the tire blankets. And then also uh, they're working on a wet weather aero package, which uh, teams will be able to work on the outside package of the aerodynamic testing restriction limits and outside the cost cap. Very and the cool. Testing for the, Very cool. Yeah. And the testing for the new aero kit, which is uh, being uh, constructed to limit water spray, will take place during Q2 or Q3 or 2023. So that's going to come up uh, pretty quick. So I like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So there's going to be some uh, changes uh, to circuits uh, this year. Saudi Arabia is going to go undergo some more changes to improve uh, vis- uh, visibility on corner entry. And Baku and Miami are going to be completely resurfaced. And you know, Miami, that was the, a big one. I think that was a bit of a black eye on the Miami Grand Prix last year. There, totally there was agree. so much totally hype, agree. so much hype and excitement to get that inaugural uh, Miami Grand Prix in the books. And there, there was a lot of uh, you know hype around it. But just the the way that that uh, track uh, degraded really did uh, leave a bit of a negative uh, impression. Anyways, glad to see they're doing that. At Zanfort, uh, they're going to be uh, making the uh, spaces between uh, pit stop boxes. So will increase by 1.5 meters or about five feet. Qatar will have a new pit building and paddock infrastructure. And DRS zone changes will be made in Bahrain, Jeddah, Melbourne, Baku, and Miami. And in Melbourne, they're going to add a fourth DRS zone. So that's quite a bit. But but um, the the news about uh, Qatar getting a new pit building and pit or sorry paddock infrastructure that doesn't seem like news. I feel like I've heard that mentioned before, but maybe I'm just confusing that with something else. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting tidbit, right? Because when we went to Qatar in 2021, it was initially as a mechanism to use LaSalle as a means to uh, kind of pad the calendar because of COVID. And they then struck a 10-year agreement. But the commitment, the promise very much was that LaSalle would be complemented with a new downtown track on the waterfront in Doha. I don't know. And I did a little bit of half-assed internet research this week. I did a little bit of research to try to get a sense of what the progress is on that track. um, And I haven't found anything. So I suppose in the meantime, they're simply trying to get LaSalle up to Formula One standards because it was built and constructed for MotoGP. Certainly, they've had some open wheel racing there in the past, but it was never designed or intended for Formula One use. And I think now that they're probably going to be there for a couple of years, like even if they put shovels in the ground and started working on a new Corniche circuit, in in downtown Doha, it's probably going to be a couple of years. So I think in the meantime, if they intend to race at LaSalle, which again, like I said, was open in the early 2000s as a MotoGP track, uh, they they want to make sure that the hospitality and the paddocks and the garages are are F1 caliber because it is from infrastructure perspective, like it's it's an interesting track, but from an infrastructure perspective, there's very little in the way of hospitality. There's very little way in the in the way of grandstands. There's very little in the way of fan amenities. So I think they're trying to build out the capabilities of that track, presumably while they try to decide what they're going to do with respect to that Doha track. Yeah, this is a propos of nothing, but a good friend of mine has been working in Qatar for the last uh, several years. Uh, he was uh, involved with the whole World Cup thing. And, you know, sadly for him, at least, uh, his time will be end up at the at the end of uh, August. But, 
in the last year or so, I mean, any talk that's kind of filtered through Simon has really dried up, um, you know, because it, it, you know, Qatar is, you know, it's, it's a small place and, you know, big events like the World Cup and Formula One, those get uh, discussed uh, quite a bit. And I remember when, you know, Qatar came on to the Formula One radar a couple of years ago, there was constant news that, uh, and, and updates that I was getting from, from my friend. And, you know, as we got closer to, to first kip, uh, kick at the, uh, at the World Cup uh, late last fall, that news really kind of dried up and it really hasn't, you know, picked up since. I mean, that doesn't mean that um, that that there's nothing happening there. But I just found it interesting that that, uh, you know, in conjunction with the news that they're going to update uh, and 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 renovate the existing facilities kind of made me wonder where the priority priorities and also where they are in the construction of the new track. I'll have to check in with Simon and see where that uh, what, what's happening on the ground there while he's still there, you know, uh, at least uh, in the next six months, which you know seems like a lot of time. But for someone like me who tends to forget about things <laughs> it's not a lot of time anyways um okay just a couple more things uh, there's also a couple of uh, changes to sporting technical and financial regulations they're going to be a winter shutdown period for teams and power unit manufacturers along with the existing summer shutdown uh there's wording that has been added to the rules to ensure shorter uh, races will have reduced points even if the race isn't finished under a suspension and at events that include a sprint session there will be greater allowance for teams uh, to change change parts that are easily damaged, allowing teams to do so from qualifying on Friday to the start of the race on Sunday. And wording has been uh, added to allow the FIA to audit teams or auditing teams, easier access to team factories to police the regulations. As for the cost cap adjustments for races beyond 21 has risen from 1.2 million to 1.8 million per race. And the FIA stated that uh, this was done on the basis that the trend uh, of the additional races being added to the calendar has been towards flyaways, which are more expensive expensive. And then, of course, uh, before this is all said and done and becomes official, it has to be approved by the World Motorsport Council at an upcoming meeting sometime in the future. And all this information uh, came via the uh, official Formula1.com website. Okay, Hammy, here we go. Moving right along. I think we got time for another one uh, before we have uh, have to take a break here. So uh, did you want to talk anything more about those changes to the, the, to the tracks in Miami? I think we covered that uh, nicely. Uh, right there. Um, I did want to just to really quickly uh, before the, uh, the, the the next break here in a couple of minutes, the whole fact that uh, that um, Pirelli is going to introduce a wet weather tire that doesn't need to be heated in blankets, as we, we were talking about a little bit a uh, few minutes ago, that the existing wet weather tires can be heated f- up to 40 degrees for a maximum of two hours. But um, they're, they've, they're developing a compound for these wet weather tires that don't need to be heated at all. Hammy, this, this is cool. This is really cool. Ooh, I love tire warmers. I I, I don't Do necessarily you? know why, and I can't really describe it. But just the the idea <laughs> okay. the idea of a car being able to have an outlap without having to without having and again you, you could argue that well I guess in a lot of ways you a tire warmer is in fact a driver aid because it abil- gives them the ability to hit that outlap and drive in anger without having to to compensate for the fact that the tire isn't really completely up to temperature. And it's not like even with a tire warmer, it's not, but to come out of the pit on a tire that hasn't been in a blanket, um, that's, that's kind of like skating on ice. And I kind of, I just, I kind of like the fact that part of the strategy of formula one is knowing that when you're putting somebody onto fresh tires or a softer compound tire that maybe has a little bit of mileage on them, they're able to go and attack, attack, attack. 
I'm not convinced that moving away from tire blankets is the right thing to do. And and I guess they're doing it because one, there's a cost associated to it. And there's a carbon impact associated with using these high voltage electric blankets. Um, but I'm, I'm a fan of keeping them. I, I think there's an argument that can be made that they're good for the safety of the sport. Um, and I just don't think that Pirelli is ever going to be able to engineer. And this isn't, this isn't to discredit Pirelli in any way. I just, I don't think they're ever going to be able to engineer a compound that's going to be able to come out of the box um, in the same way that a heated tire would be able to come out of the box in terms of immediate traction. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there is a, a somewhat a generic kind of joint FIA F1 statement that came out and it says uh, the following, quote, Following successful testing by Pirelli with the support of teams, Pirelli have arrived at a wet weather tire, which is much more performant than the previous specification. This tire type does not require the use of blankets, end quote. So, you know, it it tells you something kind of interesting, but then doesn't really expand on it. And then also introduces a word that I've never been familiar with, the uh, the word performant, which we've now dropped a couple of times into this episode. I've, I've never it. heard that word uh, before, but uh, anyways, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, um, I, I see the, the, the use of uh, tire blankets as, uh, as a bit of a safety aid, but, uh, you know, with the, uh, you know, drivers, you know, having tires that are somewhat up to temperature, like you say, I mean, what is it now? It takes them about what a quarter, a third of a lap to really get them up to temperature once they, that they, they leave the pits. But I would imagine that if they did away with them all, it would take a good couple of laps uh, before you went from the cold tires before they get into that nice uh, operating zone or you would hope would be the nice operating zone that's one thing i found really you know interesting over the past uh, several years uh, specifically is that you have at times uh, drivers that have struggled to to really get the, that uh, like a set of tires into that real sweet spot and i always found that interesting it's like why would that or not would that or would that not happen when those kind of tires go onto the car especially after they've had the blankets on them for for so long that you know, once they go on the car, theoretically, once they get out into the car or onto the track, I know, I know it's, uh, there, there's a lot to it. And the best person to ask that question to is Tim Haraney. I mean, he knows all these uh, things. It's just the amount of energy that you're putting into the tires and just to, to, to really maintain in that, uh, to that zone. But yeah, it is interesting just in general though, that Pirelli have developed a, a tire blanket less, uh, compound, but I guess that's kind of going old school because I mean, back before when, when do you think that those came in late eighties, early nineties, they've, they've been around the, these electric tire blankets for a long, long, long time. I mean, I don't ever remember formula one without them. And, you know, I, I'm a chronologically challenged old person. So, you know, like I say, I, <laughs> I don't ever remember watching formula one without them when I was like, when I was little, but perhaps they did, but I mean, they have been around uh, at least I would think since the, uh, the early 1980s anyways, uh, or sorry, late 1980s or the early 1990s at the very, very least. Anyways, uh, time to take another quick break. When we come back on the flip side, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things, Honda and Red Bull. They always seem to come up uh, or, or feature quite frequently on the show. We're going to talk about them and we'll do that on the flip side. So please don't go away. We'll be back in just one moment. (laughs) 
All right. Welcome back to the podcast. And this next one is interesting. This comes care of uh, Jonathan Noble over at uh, motorsport.com. And the article is titled, quote, Curious Honda uh, already approached over 2026 F1 engine deals. And apparently uh, they have been approached, according to Honda, that is, they have been approached by not one, not two, not three. Well, maybe three counts is several. I guess one There's is one, two is a couple. There's only three possible teams that could three, approach yeah. them, right? It's going to be Aston Martin, it's going to be Williams, and it's going to be McLaren. But this story just, and not to, well, I'm just interjecting and completely running roughshod over whatever your train of thought was. Oh, but, no, please please run roughshod, this, my friend. This runs directly into that story that you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago when we had that super clickbaity title about uh, Honda and McLaren to become kind of a, a collaborative works project. But obviously, Honda's still sniffing around. They they have no firm commitment to the sport for 2026. They're going to continue to supply Honda RB. PT badged engines to AlphaTauri and to Red Bull through the end of 2025, but they have no firm commitment to the sport beyond that. But I think it's encouraging that they're still talking and they're still entertaining ideas of of remaining in the sport. And if you look at the grid right now, right, like the only people that would potentially partner with with uh, with Honda would be a, an existing customer team and AlphaTauri in a sense is a customer team of Red Bull. Well, they're probably very, very likely going to have a, a Ford Red Bull powertrains power unit in the back of their car. Haas has a very, very involved and intricate relationship with Ferrari. And it's unlikely that that's going to be unwound anytime soon. Williams is a Mercedes customer team. McLaren is a Mercedes customer team. Aston Martin is a Mercedes customer team. And I don't think that any three of them have a marriage with Mercedes that is completely unbreakable. So I think it's probably all three of those teams just doing their due diligence to get a sense of what's best for their team from 2026 onwards. And if I'm Williams or I'm McLaren and there's an opportunity to forge a strong works partnership with Honda, then I'm a significant advocate for that, especially um, if if Honda could inject some much needed capital and expertise into the operation, I think it'd probably be a little bit trickier for McLaren just because they have a competing road car division. Uh, unlike Williams, like Williams would be the natural fit. But at the same time, if I'm Honda and I'm going to partner with a team, um, am I confident in what Geraldton has done with that team over the last couple of years since they've assumed ownership? And maybe I'm not, although maybe Geraldton can show them a roadmap to help them understand where they're going and where their investments are going to be. But obviously, one of those three teams, if not all three of those teams have spoken to Honda about a potential engine supply deal for 26 and beyond. Yeah, it's interesting too. Uh, earlier this week, uh, Honda Racing Corporation uh, President Koji Watanabe said that the uh, that Honda remains uh, what he says is curious about Formula One's direction, and uh, he elaborated by saying, "Quote: Formula One is greatly shifting towards electrification and carbon neutrality is our corporate wide target at Honda. We think that F1's future direction is in line with our target, so that is why we've decided to register as the manufacturer of a power unit. We're curious about where F1 is going." F1 being the top racing category and how that is going to look with more electrification happening. 
we would like to, to keep a very close eye on that. And that is why we've decided to register as a PU manufacturer. After we made the registration, we've been contacted by multiple F1 teams. For the time being, we would like to keep a close eye on where F1 is going and just see how things go. For now, we don't have any concrete decisions on whether or not we'll be going back to joining F1. But from the perspective of technological development, we think that knowing that this is being part of F1 is going to help us with technological development. So that is where we are, end quote. So finally, I think that uh, Mr. Watanabe has kind of like uh, like spelled it out in just uh, you know several sentences exactly where Honda is, what they're looking at, what they're you know what what they what, what is the end game? I think is the big question that that a lot of a lot of us have had over the past uh, several years and i think that uh, he really lays it out uh, nicely there what uh, their 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 position actually is where they're how, how they're currently involved in uh, formula one and where they possibly could go from there so finally nice to get some some uh uh, clarification on that. So this is interesting. So we were talking about uh, one uh, of these uh, Mercedes customer teams, and that is uh, McLaren. But a pack, uh, apparently, Zach Brown, CEO of McLaren, was seen taking a tour of the Red Bull uh, factory. So what, what's going on there, Mr. Mark Hamilton? Oh, is this, this, this uh, isn't this, this, this juicy, is juicy? Right? This is this <laughs> is the it. good stuff, and this comes uh, yeah. this comes from Crash.net, reported by Lewis Larkham. It seems that Zach Brown, obviously CEO of McLaren, as you just described, is doing his due diligence, right? Like they have a relationship with Mercedes and they're they're going to be supplied with Mercedes power units through the end of 2025. And then in a sense, they become a free agent and there's an opportunity to revisit who their power unit supplier is going to be. And obviously it makes sense to do your homework and explore those options. It's probably not going to be Ferrari because they are chief rivals from a road car division uh, perspective. Maybe it's Honda, as you and I just described. It's probably not going to be Renault that didn't, that that worked okay, but it wasn't the perfect the perfect marriage a couple of years ago. But it makes total sense that he he makes that drive from Woking up to Milton Keynes and gets a personal tour of the Red Bull powertrains division because they could very well be a supplier to teams beyond uh, beyond Alpha Tauri and beyond beyond their own works operation. So it it made a lot of sense. And what Lewis is reporting here is, quote unquote, McLaren CEO Zach Brown visited Red Bull's Milton Keynes factory earlier this month to hold exploratory talks with the reigning world championships, according to a report by The Independent. Red Bull are currently powered by Honda, but are creating their own engine division, Red Bull Powertrains, to supply the senior team and sister outfit Alpha Tauri from 26. American car giant Ford will partner with Red Bull in this project. The Woking squad are contemplating their options from 2026 onward and are understood to have made initial contact with Honda over a possible F1 reunion. Um, And a quote here, we're very happy with Mercedes, Zach Brown said at McLaren's launch of their 2023 F1 car. We have some time to decide what we want to do in 2026 and beyond. I think it's exciting for Formula One to have this many manufacturers coming to the sport. I think it shows the growth and excitement for the sport. It's certainly something Andrea, Stella, and I are in this process of slowly reviewing. We're not in a big rush, and we are very happy with Mercedes. So we'll see how things play out in the next year or so before we make a decision. 
Yeah, that's very cool. And like, like I say, or like you said, pardon me, that uh, that Zach is just doing his uh, due diligence. I mean, if there's a better option out there for them, then uh, he would be uh, he he wouldn't be doing his job if he didn't go and uh, and check it out. I mean, it's it, like uh, we were just uh, talking about a few minutes ago. It's been highly speculated that they've already made initial contact uh, with Honda. We talked about it tonight. We talked about it last week. I think it was last week. Um, anyways, we've talked about it uh, recently, but uh, that 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 would be a, an interesting one. The the red or the the McLaren Red Bull or whatever it was. But yeah, it kind of makes me wonder though how those engines will be badged. Like if a Red Bull starts to produce engines and then have customer units, you know, will they have like naming rights up for, for sale? Because it would be kind of like I I guess it would work. It'd be like a, a McLaren RBPT or something like that. But kind of also makes you wonder if we would see some sort of like naming badge kind of deal like we saw a couple of years ago with the with the Renault engine that was uh, branded uh, what was it uh, Tag Heuer was it uh, what, uh, Red Bull Tag Heuer Red Bull Heuer something something like that so it could uh, possibly something like that okay moving along to the next story now so talking about uh, the, uh, the the preseason testing and what uh, some drivers like Fernando Alonso are saying unfair which is a uh, there's a uh, basically a day and a half uh, for drivers to to test their cars there's three days in total and this comes after I mean it's it's been steadily decreasing over the years in-season testing was banned quite a while, while ago you got to go all the way back to 2009 um, so, <laughs> so it's it's kind of gone from from one extreme to the other i mean back in the day anything went i mean you could basically have your your test team up and running going 24 7 365 at a factory and now circuit forward. beside your factory exactly yeah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, and you know, now you fast forward uh, a dozen or so years into the future, and it's it's really become so you know scaled back. I mean, it, it's more than scaled back. I mean, it's it's been completely almost decimated. reduced to the point of of nothing. Decimate, yeah, decimated. Great, uh, great choice of word, Mark. Yeah, and Ed Straw, obviously from the race.com put together a great article this week, and there's a couple of interesting quotes from existing F1 racers that I thought were very interesting and that I wanted to share. And one of them is from Fernando Alonso, and Fernando Alonso says at the beginning of the season I expect some difficult races until where we until we find where the car operates which which window in the setup we have to work with the first 5 or 6 races in Alpine I was struggling a lot with the feeling of the front end and with different power steering settings so it, it's interesting right that you have a driver like Fernando Alonso who has 358 grand prix starts in formula 1 a total record I don't know if we're ever going to see somebody surpass that although I say that I just realized we probably will see that surpass but the reality is that this is hugely and driver with two decades of experience is speaking to the fact that it's really difficult to migrate to a new team in the current era that like you described in prior years where a team could be testing around the track or around the clock and a team could rent a track and send their test team and send their drivers there to get some reps in the reality is Fernando Alonso signed this deal and aside from a little bit of tire testing after Abu Dhabi and the filming shakedown day this is really his first opportunity to test this car and while they're there for three days, he's probably only going to get three sessions, which means he's really only getting a day and a half in this car before he's expected to compete in a Formula One Grand Prix. Like that's that's asking a lot of a seasoned driver. And and obviously he speaks here to the fact that when he was with Alpine, it took him five or six races in that first year back to really get to grips with that car. And then it's compounded when you think about the fact that, well, you know, at least Fernando Alonso is familiar with the circuits and he's familiar with the tires and he's familiar with the gearboxes and the power units. But think about it if you're a rookie. The rookies especially
actually are at a huge disadvantage because they're not necessarily familiar with the circuits. They're not familiar with the amount of traction and grip and braking power that these cars have. They're not familiar with the acceleration. So it's a huge, huge, huge adjustment. And there's another quote in this article from Ed Straw here from GPDA director George Russell, um, who said the following, personally speaking, I don't think three days is enough. You've got to remember from a driver's perspective, this is one and a half days per driver. We were fortunate to do the tire test, but had we not that, or had we not, that would have been getting on for 12 weeks out of the car from Abu Dhabi to Bahrain. So they make an interesting point here that really we talked about earlier in the podcast that we've cut down on winter testing because one, the richer teams are always going to be able to do more of it. So there's a competitive disadvantage for the smaller team. So by slicing it down to three days, it kind of creates more competitive parity. So that's good for the teams. It cuts down on the carbon footprint of the sport and it cut downs on cost, which is important because we're operating in a cost cap era. But where people really suffer are the drivers, the rookies, because they're not getting any meaningful reps in these cars before they're expected to race. And if you switch teams, you're at a significant disadvantage because you have to learn that entire new team and a new chassis and possibly a new gearbox and possibly a new engine. It's it's asking a lot. So when we talk about the current format of winter testing being unfair, um, I think you could make an argument that, yeah, maybe it is a little bit unfair to drivers in those circumstances. Although, of course, that can be countered with the fact that these are the best drivers in the world. They're expected to be able to drive at the highest level in the world and they're being paid in some cases multi-millions or tens of millions of dollars. But uh, it's an interesting perspective, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. A, it, it's a bit of a fascinating conversation to have, right? Because this is not like the, the 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 teams like testing close to home, or in some cases, right next to where their their facilities are, right? I mean, this is a flyaway test. Sure, they're not just going to Bahrain and then packing up and then going back to wherever their respective factories are. Most of them, obviously, in the UK, but it's uh, you know, it, it's not like say. Um, uh, what was the name of uh, Ferrari's test track? I'm just kind of drawing a blank now. I I know they've used a Mugello. Did they not have another one back in the you know, as well? I can't quite can't quite remember off the top of my head. But you know, it, it's Fiorano. I kind Fiorano. of wondered. Yes, thank you very much. That's I knew it started with an F. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. Um, what was I going to say now? Yeah, I mean, just the, the whole idea of like a flyaway test that isn't really a flyaway test because they're going to be staying there regardless uh, for the for the Grand Prix next weekend. But, uh, you know, full respect to Formula One to trying to reduce like their carbon footprint and things like that. But w- there, there's got to be like a bit of a happy medium, I think, is what I'm trying to get to is like you have like basically a day and a half per driver per preseason test compared to anything that went pre-2009, which was clearly over the top and in and in this day and age in in 2023 seems completely absurd and uh, and ridiculous but there there's got to be some sort of like happy medium because it's like like you say I mean it's a disadvantage for a driver like Fernando Alonso to change and move to a, a new team or it's going to be very difficult for for somebody like Oscar Piastri or Logan Sargent who are coming up from a lower formula and they're getting they're having to learn it all right I mean not just the car not just the engine not just the the, uh, the, uh, the 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 gearbox but the team the sport the tracks it's basically the entire works so th- there's to me there's got to be some sort of like a happy medium I mean 
okay, for guys like Logan and Sargent who they're new to the sport, they're going to have to learn these tracks because some of them they'll have raced at in some of these different formulas and some of they some of them they won't have. But, you know, the, at least uh, that you think you, you know, one thing you could do to at least help them out or just drivers in general is give them the opportunity to, to do a little bit more testing. I think that they probably should allow that in Formula One. The question is, how do they achieve it? And what is that, that, that magic number is, is there some sort of like winning combination? I mean, obviously Ferrari have options where they could go and test, you know, for, for most of the UK based teams, you know, Silverstone and others, you know, there's plenty of circuits in the UK that they could go and test at. It's just like, you know, is, is there some way to do some testing closer to home without having to throw everything into like the, you know, the belly of a 747 fly it, you know, three quarters around the, the globe for, for a weekend or something like that. I, mean, I, th- I think it's a great discussion. And I think that it deserves a, a little bit more looking into by some of those at the top. Okay. So the, uh, the next one, let me just uh, move ahead here. Oh yeah. Th- this one, this is an interesting one. Um, this comes from a uh, total motorsport written by uh, our good friend, Ed Spencer. Ed just seems to pop up all over the places uh, these days. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Ed's uh, latest article, hap- uh, Gasly happy to have ha- patched up relations with Ocon. And uh, the byline here is that uh, Pierre Gasly has revealed that his relationship with Esteban Ocon is now much better as they try to push Alpine up this field this year. I think that's uh, that's great. I mean, uh, you know, there's let's just say that there's been some beef uh, between these two. And I- I'm glad to see that in a sport which is, you know, let's just say there's some big egos and then you know this is a sport where you you got to put number one first right so i I think it's great that these two guys have sat down they've uh, tried to put their differences aside um (laughs) i think it's interesting when you hear um gasly what he said uh, when he was uh, on a call with uh, the media recently he said quote it's been good we've spent more time together the past two months than we've done over the past 10 years i'm pleased with how we've handled things we both grew up as people we're more mature aware of the responsibilities of representing a team like alpine with the Renault group behind us, I, I've got no doubt that we'll be able to work very closely and work well to push the team forward, and it's going to benefit us all, end quote. So there you go. Well, you know, like, I, I'm glad to hear that uh, that Pierre is saying the right thing in, in public. It would be interesting to see, of course, uh, you know, how that, you know, when, when push comes to shove and when elbows get, you know, need to get uh, pushed out a little bit when, uh, you know, in the thick of the fight, <laughs> are they really going to be thinking about that or are they going to be like, like a coming together on the track and it'll all end in tears and, and bad feelings again. But at least uh, glad to hear that they're trying to put their differences uh, aside. So this will be interesting. This next one here, uh, P- uh, sorry, I was going to say Pierre Grosjean, pardon me, Roman Grosjean's car, his has that uh, went up in flames in Bahrain a couple of years ago at the end of the 2020 uh, season will be uh, displayed for the very first time in public at a Formula One exhibit. And that is just crazy. I mean, there is a an entire episode i guess on uh what was it uh, two years ago the what was it last season's drop of um drive to survive it was like man of fire or some man in like man of fire so, something like that that basically goes over that entire race in bahrain at the end of the season and that whole shocking incident when uh, when roman went off the track into the armco barrier and the way that that car just got lodged in between those you know th- those uh sheets in the armco barrier and the way that it just went up in flames 
flames is just uh, just frightening. But that would be, I think, a very, very sobering experience to see what that car looks like now, knowing that these are, are beautiful pieces of machinery when they're when they're in their finest. But to see one that has gone through the horrors of the impact and the resulting fire mark, I, I think that would be quite something to see up close. What, what do you think? Yes, I agree. No, oh, we're <laughs> we're at that point we're at of the show of the already. Show where Mark is like <laughs> eagerly, eagerly awaiting the uh, the the final lap. Yeah, I think it's very cool, man. I'm also glad they preserved the car because I think it's a, yes. a remarkable symbol of the value of safety. So for all the criticism that I think you and I have of the FIA, I think we can look at the remnants of that car as a symbol of what what the FIA absolutely delivers in in obviously in partnership with the teams and their vendor partners and things like that. But I think it's a remarkable symbol and I'm glad they're taking this car on, I don't want to say on tour because that sounds a little bit disingenuous, but I'm glad they're going to be giving people the opportunity to see the remnants of the car because I think it's really important that people see it because on the one hand, it, it helps to demonstrate how how incredibly dangerous this sport is but it also shows that the technologies that they've crafted such as the halo um can and will and do save save lives because i don't think i i just i still remember to this day man like i remember sitting down with you to record that podcast that day and mm-hmm. i just i i cannot imagine how we would have approached that podcast if the outcome had been different and if the outcome had been negative as opposed to positive, I don't know that I would have done another podcast because I think I would have found it very difficult to continue to get excited about a sport where the competitors um, face peril so so regularly. I like, I'm, I'm trying to choose my words here very, very carefully, but I think I really would have struggled to come back to the sport after that because you and I, we've been watching the sport for a decade, man. Like We were watching it when, when Senna uh, passed away in Imola, and of course, we both uh, are very familiar with the the hugely unfortunate outcome of 2014 when a car went off in Japan and, and hit a tractor and and all these kind of pieces. Like, I just think that car is very important because it's a symbol of technology and it's a symbol that shows how much risk there is in this sport. But that through technology, we're over able to overcome and combat a lot of that that adversity and risk. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very important that you bring up the, the accident at Suzuka with Jules Bianchi uh, back in uh, 2014 because, you know, I, I'll be quite upfront and and I've, I've got some regret and a little bit of shame about this that when, when they proposed the Halo several, more, more than several years ago now, I wasn't in favor of it. I was like, oh, I was going to ruin the look of the car, but... And and that whole discussion, but I, I'm glad that they pushed ahead with it. I'm glad that they've introduced it. And and I kind of shudder now when I think when, when you see some of these accidents and like when when just going and and reading about the the, the fact that they're going to take um yeah when we said that on tour it doesn't only sound disingenuous it also sounds a little bit macabre yeah. <laughs> story <laughs> the car that's all like like that but uh, yeah I mean that they're going to display Roman's uh, car and just to, to to demonstrate what it is I mean I almost shudder to think now like I I couldn't. I I wouldn't want to go back to a Formula One that was Halo-less. I mean, we, we've seen already since it's been introduced. Uh, now, what, what year did it come in now? 2018. 2018, yeah. yeah. The, just uh, almost right away that, uh, that 
that season, remember at uh, at Spa when what was it? Uh, Nico Hulkenberg ran into what was it? Uh, back of Fernando Alonso that he went up and was it Charles that had that uh, like Fernando's rubber marks on his his helmet and his halo? So I mean, it had like it had. You know, it, it did what it was intended to do. Like, uh, right, I was going to use the word impact, but that seems like a very, very poorly chosen pun, you know, in this uh, discussion. But it it really did do what it needed to do. And we've seen that uh, several times uh, since. But uh, I think it'd be fascinating to, you know, to kind of bring it full circle. I think it would be fascinating to see Roman's car uh, up close. I just, I, okay, and I want to add just want, too, because oh, sorry, go if, ahead. if you're Pardon demonstrating me. a sense of, of humility on that one, like, I'm in total agreement that I remember sitting at a, at a company meeting with my good friend Gil and Gil had mentioned something to me about the sport introducing the halo. And it was the first time I'd heard that word. And I was so adamantly opposed to the concept. And for the same, for the same selfish reasons that I thought it would look, I thought, I thought it would just make the cars look bad. Like I like the, uh, the concept of this open cockpit and to be able to see the driver and then pivot their head and look in the mirrors. I thought it was terrible. And furthermore, I, I then started rationalizing it as, well, it's going to be dangerous for the driver to drive with the halo because they're going to pivot their head and there's going to be this obstruction immediately in front of their face like it's going to be difficult and you know i just pulled up a quote you know here in the background but there was that episode of there was that episode of drive to survive in season four and this was a tweet that we sent out last year but toto walks back into the factory at brackley and he surveys he surveys the carnage of the max lewis crash at monza and he says quote unquote four years ago i was fighting the halo Thank God I didn't win that fight. So it wasn't just you and I sitting here as spectators <laughs> that were opposed to it. Somebody yeah. like Toto in the in the midst of the Formula One ecosystem and battle and in the paddock every single race weekend and walking around the factory and talking to the drivers who are risking their lives at every single race, he was opposed to it, which I think was astonishing. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad that you uh, pulled that tweet up uh, for 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 context because I I'd, I'd completely forgotten that uh, he said that uh, and and now that you've uh, brought it back up, I I, I really remember how much of a, a sobering there's kind of like one of those kind of like sit up in your chair moments like wow I can't believe that uh, that Toto just said that because you know I I didn't uh, actually you know expect that like I I, I don't re- recall at the time that uh, and I'm sure that those quotes were out there in the media when they were. We're talking about the the, the 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 halo, and I'm I'm sure that if the you know Toto had any negative uh, feelings towards it, he would have said it at the time. I just don't recall it uh, personally. But when I saw that on DTS last year, that really was one of those eye-opening sit up in your chair totally. moments uh, w- when he said that. Yeah, it was. I want to talk a little bit more about Mercedes and Toto, but I do want to take one final quick break. We'll do that. Come back on the flip side, and we got a bunch of quick stories, I think, and we'll get to those right after the break. So don't go away. All right. Welcome back. So sticking with the Mercedes, apparently they do have what they call a plan B car in reserve for the 2023 zero. Should they decide to walk away from the zero uh, pods, you know, the no side pod uh, concept that we saw introduced on uh, last year's W13. That was one of those really interesting moments that I was looking uh, to see this year when we saw the the launch of the Mercedes, I guess, what about a uh, 10 days ago, two weeks ago now, or whatever it was that with a W W14, they're basically sticking with the same concept of uh, zero side pods. But uh, even more fascinating on that is that uh, they 
it's not like they doubled down and decided that it's zero side pods or nothing. It's like it's zero side pods or nothing. But just in case the zero pod side pod concept doesn't work, we do have another car, uh, another car in in our back pocket. Should we need to to, to walk away from this concept once and for all and so, go back to so something more a little bit more tried and true? they have the design for another car. So pre-cost cap Mm. era, this was always the risk with a team like Red Bull or Ferrari or Mercedes. They literally could have a fully built plan B backup car at their factory. With the cost cap, can't really do that, but they certainly have designs. And there's an article from the mirror.co.uk. And man, I'm digging into the bastion of quality journalism today, but they have an interesting <laughs> they have an interesting quote here from Ted Kravitz. And he says, they being Mercedes, they're giving their big idea in brackets. I'm going to insert in brackets here, the zero pod concept. Uh, they're giving their big idea, which was a failure last year, one more go. But I believe they have a plan B in production, he said. If they need to, they can go to plan B, which is the Red Bull or Ferrari style of doing things in the middle of the season. So if they come out flat early in the season, and they'll probably know by Jeddah, if they come out flat and they need to pivot, they've got a little bit of time to put that plan B car into production. And the plan B car would obviously be new side pod design, new cooling, new radiators, new floors. Um, But they obviously have the plan in a CAD file somewhere so that if they come out flat and they're not looking as competitive as they hoped after Jeddah, um, they've got the ability to start, start producing the parts to get this plan B car on the track. You know, just from from a planning logistics uh, point of view, I find this admission just uh, absolutely fascinating. Considering that this isn't pre cost cap era, that uh, the, the the fact that that they have these plans means that this is like like a, a serious consideration for them. That they've done all the math on this. That if they decide that this zero side pod concept just is not the way to go, that the the, the potential that they thought that this design had just is never going to pan out in reality, and they have to go to to something else that they've already crunched those numbers to know that they can walk away from that and just say, okay, guys, let's just put a big red X through this and let's go with the, you know, let's go with plan B instead that they know how much that's actually going to cost and realize that, you know, we can still do this and do everything else that we need to do and stay under the, the, the maximum for the budget cap for this year. That to me, I think is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Ted continues here. These rules are what they are for a few years yet. So they've got to get it right at some point, they being Mercedes. Uh, But at the moment they're saying, look, we think we've got a proper handle on what went wrong last year. We still think think our way, which is unique in the pit lane, having very slim side pods is the way to go aerodynamically. Most of the downforce is generated by the floor, which you can't see, but they're saying don't expect anything soon. So yeah, I agree with you. It's very, very interesting uh, that one, people are openly talking about the fact that they have a plan B and the fact that they think they need one. But obviously what Ferrari was doing last year before they started turning down that power unit and certainly what Red Bull did throughout the championship is working um, in terms of the aerodynamic formula um, on the shrouds around the the radiator and the cooling systems. Um, And what they did clearly was not as successful. But again, the the Mercedes, you and I talked about this last week, the Mercedes that they were driving in Brazil um, in Abu Dhabi at the end of last year was very different than the Mercedes they had every race leading into Silverstone. So i feel that they probably have some confidence that this is the right thing to do. But as a multi-hundred million dollar organization, they always have to have a backup plan. 
Yeah, 100%. And I think that the only reason that uh, this is uh, really seeing the light of day, this story, is the fact that this is a Mercedes, because this is not unheard of. We saw this last year with the uh, with, with the Aston Martin. I mean, the Aston Martin that ended up that season was you know pretty much a completely different uh, car that they started the season with. And they introduced uh, that change sort of partway through the uh, season. I forget which uh, which uh, race that uh, that debuted at. Uh, but uh, I mean, that probably didn't get the you know the coverage for Aston Martin because they're Aston Martin and Mercedes is this you know this this huge hugely successful Formula One team but uh, yeah you know Hammy that will be one of the stories to to watch as the season progresses uh, and especially if they decide that they're going to pull the plug on it they're going to have to do it sooner rather than later because if that gap gets uh, too much especially at the front and they feel that they've they've got uh, you know they have a um, you know a real serious opportunity to challenge for the world championship they're not going to wait very very long so that that tolerance is going to be razor thin okay uh, moving along so uh, Max Verstappen has called out the the FIA um, in regards to the super license fee. He's calling them absurd because he was hit with a massive bill for his uh, super license uh, fee in the neighborhood of 963,800 euros, which is uh, an all-time uh, high. So uh, each uh, driver starts off uh, with a base fee of uh, 10,400 euros plus 2,100 euros per point scored during the the 2022 season so max obviously scoring what was about uh, 3700 points last year i mean as he absolutely romped to the championship what was max's f- final total that uh, was pretty close to 400 points wasn't it uh, mark uh, i don't know if you got those stats uh, up uh, up close but that is just uh, an absolutely mind-blowing mind-blowing stat uh, that uh, that he's going to have to pay well i guess um well nine hundred sixty three thousand. i guess that'd be getting pretty close to a million us as well so i mean i guess it doesn't really matter if you're looking at it in pounds or euros or or us dollars that's just a a lot of money to (laughs) to pay i mean the 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 three drivers that aren't going to have to pay this much are going to be Nico hulkenberg oscar piastri and logan Sargent. they weren't on the grid last year at all so they're on the like on on the the opposite end of the scale max is on the far end of the scale and everybody else is uh, so, some drivers are obviously closer to Max uh, than others, but uh, Max uh, said uh, in an, uh, an interview with Service uh, TV in Austria, quote, I think the sum is absurd. I don't think it's right that we have to pay so much. That's not the case in other sports either. And there are more and more races, end quote. So I don't know. I agree. Does uh, does you, yeah, you agree? I very okay. much agree with with Max on this one. Interestingly, Autosport.com, I shouldn't say interestingly, Autosport does some really great work, but Autosport.com does a really good job of summarizing this. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of back this one up a bit and just quote the article. But drivers and teams are charged a fee to participate in the world championship based on the results from the previous year, with a flat fee adding to a set amount per point scored. Due to the ever-increasing number of events and the introduction of sprint races, there are now more points on offer than ever before. With 23 races and six sprints, there will be 443 more points available in 2023 than five years ago before the advent of sprints and bonus points for the fastest lap. But the fee per point hasn't decreased to compensate for that. According to the 2023 FIA sporting regulations, all teams are required to pay a flat rate of 617 
$18,687 plus a fee per point scored. That points fee has risen from $7,000 to $7,500 for the Constructors World Championship and from $5,800 to $6,200 for the remaining nine teams. The driver fees are not made public, but Autosport has learned that for 2023, their points-based fee has been increased by nearly 30% from $1,600 to $2,100 per point scored. At that flat fee of $16,236, and the FIA is banking $27 million, a significant amount of more cash for registration fees than before. Red Bull has naturally hit the hardest as it conquered both the drivers and the constructors' championships with Verstappen and Sergio Perez. And the article goes on and on and on. But ultimately, yeah, it's it's interesting that we have more races, sprint races, fastest lap point, um, more points on offer than ever before, but they've never gone in the be they. The FIA have never re-ratcheted or ratcheted down the cost of every point accumulated to account for the fact that there's more, been more of them. The FIA is just cashing in additional money as part of this registration process. So yeah, I totally get it from Red Bull's perspective that, hey, why should we just because we're the champions um, be contributing more to the pot when all teams benefit from the governance of the FIA? You know, it, it's interesting if you look at the the tables of the drivers' fees, the licensing fees, and then the fees uh, for 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 the teams. So Max, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know he uh, checked in at nine hundred sixty nine six hundred uh, sorry nine hundred sixty nine thousand six hundred thirty six dollars. That's more than Williams. Alpha Tauri, Haas, Aston Martin, and Alpha Romeo. Wow. Half the Formula One wow. grid paid <laughs> in entry fees for this year. So Williams pay their uh, their bill for entry fees in twenty three is six hundred sixty seven thousand dollars. Alpha Romeo is nine hundred fifty seven two hundred fifty seven dollars. Uh, so, you know, Max, I mean, he he paid more than half the grid. That is. Yeah, I that that that's I I've got to back away from thinking, oh, maybe it's not such a big deal, but when when I see that then yeah, that's just a, a little bit uh, kind of crazy when uh, when you break that down. So <laughs> anyways, okay, uh final uh, last couple of stories here Happy, before we turn off uh, the lights. So uh Formula has announced that Qatar Airways is now their global airline partner in a multi-year deal. So that's uh, have have you ever flown with uh, Qatar always, Airways? Always wanted to, my friend. What about you? Yeah. No, I haven't. I, I haven't. I mean, there, there's some of those uh, airlines that, uh, that that out there that just kind of have that 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 really good uh, reputation of being the best airline to, to to fly with, and I know that uh, they have that sort of sterling reputation. So just, but I don't know anyone personally that's uh, flown with Qatar Airways. So be interested to, to hear about their experiences. And then finally, Formula One is uh, announced, or Formula One Academy, more precisely, has announced a seven round calendar, a format, and a points uh, allocation. So there will be seven races this year, starting at the 28th and 29th of April at uh, the Spielberg. So that's the uh, the Red Bull Ring in Austria, going to Valencia in Spain, and then Barcelona, then to Zandvoort in the Netherlands at the end of June, on to Monza in July, and Le Castellet in France also at the end of July, and then a big gap uh, for the final round at uh, Coda at uh, in Austin, Texas, on the 20th and 20 or to the 22nd of October. So that. That's uh, kind of cool. So, um, anything you want to add to either of those stories, Hammy? Nope. Shake it ahead. That means we're you're good done. to go. We got. We're we good have to three go. Three more podcasts to record in the next four days. We gotta. We gotta save some of the energy. We're, we're going to be busy. 
All right. Well, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. You know, I, I thought maybe we get out, get through this one in an hour, and here we are over an hour and 20 minutes, close to our Added usual 90 ads, minutes. It's going to be 215. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. Anyways, uh, that is it for now. Thank you, one and all, for uh, for checking out the show this week. As Mark has mentioned a couple times, lots of uh, shows coming up over the next week or so as we get uh, ready for the first race of the 2023 Formula One World Championship. Can't wait for that to, to get going. You want to get in touch with us? Send us a tweet on Twitter, obviously at Scooteria F1 Pod, or send us a podcast. Or sorry, send us a podcast. <laughs> send us an email, f one Pod at gmail.com. That's it, everyone. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. <laughs>